we're going to do, everybody, is we're going to be in Ezra, chapter 1. Ezra, chapter 1. Open your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Ezra, chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5. Really believing that God is going to show us something in this study for the next few minutes that we have together. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up, everyone say stirred up, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Verse 4. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then he then rose up the heads of the fathers of the houses of Judah, Benjamin, and the priests of the Levites, and everyone who was, whose spirit was what God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. What I want to title this message for us this morning is Stirred Up. Stirred Up. Will you pray with me real quick? Father, we love you so much. Holy Spirit, stir us up. Stir our affection for our God. Move us in a special way. God, if we are here and you're not, at best, all this can be is encouraging. But Lord, if you're here, everything can change. Holy Spirit, we offer these moments to you. Would you do more with it than we can ask, think, or even imagine? Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like a Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You know, it's popular in culture to be stirred up right now. You know what I mean? Like you get on social media and you're like, if anybody isn't angry or passionate or frustrated, you're like, that's refreshing. Because we look everywhere we go and everybody is seemingly stirred up or passionate, moved, frustrated, wanting something to change. They feel something and they want something to be different. We're a stirred up culture, potentially even a stirred up world right now. And it's just regular. It's just who we are as a culture right now. And maybe for you, it might be exhausting. It might be frustrating. But nevertheless, this is exactly where we're at. And the stirring up that we're seeing here in the scripture is not a social stirring up, a societal stirring up. It's a spiritual stirring up that God is stirring up, not just a people, but a person, the king Cyrus of Persia to do something. And it's not that a social stirring up is anything negative. 
is that it's just incomplete. That God wants to stir you up, not just socially, not just for a good idea, a good organization, a good mission, but he wants to stir you up spiritually. And when we see this scripture, we see that God is stirring up something in Ezra chapter 1. It's, it's not just that God is stirring up something in Ezra chapter 1. God is stirring up something in this church. I know it because our staff feels it. We've been praying into it. Sometimes it's this stirring, this feeling, this understanding that God is doing something. I'm just not sure exactly what it is. But I know that something's happening. I know that he's stirring up our community through grace loves. They might not know exactly what's going on, but there's a stirring in their soul, in their spirit, that God is doing something. I know that God is stirring you up because I've talked to you. You've told me. That you're not really sure what God is doing exactly, but you know that he's doing something. That there is a stirring going on inside of you, inside of our staff, inside of our city, that God wants to move us from one place to another. This word stirred up is this word to be moved by, to be awakened to, for something to change. And as we go and study this chapter for just a few minutes, it's really important that we understand what does it mean to be stirred up? What does that mean? What are we talking about? A stirring up. What we're going to define it as is an unquenchable impulse that doesn't come from you and isn't for you. An unquenchable impulse that does not come from you and isn't for you. It's not this moment where we had a good time in worship and I had the goosebumps and I felt the feelings and then I leave and nothing happens. It's unquenchable. There's something that needs to be satisfied in me for me to go and move forward. It's not for me. We are very inward, for, inward facing. What is in it for me? What can I get? What is God going to do with me, for me? How is God going to use me? It's not just for me. And it's not just, uh, it's not coming from me. What does that mean? That sometimes the purpose of God in your life is not your purpose for your life. If we've lived long enough, we've known that God has changed one, if not a few of our plans. An unquenchable impulse that doesn't come from you and that isn't for you. A stirring that God gives and we see in Ezra chapter 1. Now, as we see, we need context because the Israelites, they are usually in a pretty bad place when we look in the Old Testament. And at this point in history, the Israelites are coming out of captivity. And they're going into one of the purposes that God has for them. What happens is that Jeremiah had prophesied that there was going to be a season, a 70-year period of time in which the Israelites were going to be taken captive. The temple was going to be destroyed. They were going to be actually enslaved and captive. And then after this period and this season of time was up, they now were going to move back into their purpose. Where we find the Israelites is that they have been in captive for ba in Babylon now in Persia for, for years, for decades. And now the word of the Lord comes through Cyrus to go and tell the people, now I'm moving you into, from one place into the next. Now, when we think about the temple, the temple is not just a, a church. It's not just a synagogue. It's not just a, a place where a bunch of spiritual people happen to be. The temple of God is the dwelling place of God on the earth. It is the place where God is. 
That God decided to make a place with his people, and that place is called the temple of God. That this moment isn't just a moment for them to go back to church. This is a moment for them to establish the dwelling place of God exactly where they are. It's the presence of God in the earth. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that the Israelites now are getting sent back into building the temple for God. It's, it's important because this, where the presence of God is, there is a potential for stirring. Wherever the presence of God is, there is always a potential for stirring. King Cyrus even says this in verse three. He said, may his God be with him. And it's interesting because Cyrus is almost prophesying to the people of God. He's, he's saying, you know what? You have been in captive with me for a while. I'm going to let you go back to go build your temple. And you know what? I'm going to give you some money. I'm going to give you some funds. And would your God go be with you while you do it? It's amazing that God has moved King Cyrus to go and send the people of God back to build the temple of God. And Ezra, who we see in this story, is somebody who rises up, who we actually don't meet till later in the book. And he is the one who is giving this word from God to go and rebuild the temple. Now, it's a lot of context, but it's really important because the book of Ezra is connected to this book called Nehemiah. What we see in these two books that are paralleling is that we see three main characters who are commissioned by God to do a work for God. One, we see Zerubbabel. Two, we see Ezra. And three, we see Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was given, and the guy we actually first meet in Ezra, and he goes back to physically, literally lay down the foundation of the temple. He physically builds up the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. Then we meet Ezra. Ezra was a Bible nerd. Ezra was a Torah guy. Ezra loved the scriptures. What he does is he goes back to Jerusalem once the temple is built, and he starts teaching everybody in the temple how to obey God. Then we meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the guy who comes after Ezra, and once the temple is been built and the people have been taught, he builds up the walls. You remember the story? Ezra, I mean, Nehemiah is the guy who builds with one hand and has a sword in the other. We see in this one moment that God moves and stirs one man and generation after generation after generation are accomplishing the purpose of God. God stirs one man and it changes history. This is the importance of a stirring of God. Where the presence of God is, there is a potential for stirring. An unquenchable impulse that doesn't come from you and isn't merely for you. It's important that we understand that the presence of God increases the potential for stirring because no matter where you are, God can stir you. That means that if you've been laid off for months and you're trying to figure out how to make ends meet, God can still stir. That means that if you have a broken heart in this room right now and you're trying to put the pieces back together, God can still stir. That means that if you're trying to figure out your family situation and you feel like you don't know which way is up and which way is down, God can still stir. If you're trying to manage an addiction and you don't know how to get out of it and you feel really hopeless, guess what? God can still stir. Why? Because where the presence of God is, there's the potential for stirring. 
God can stir anybody. And we see that he does it with King Cyrus. It is an unlikely decree from an unlikely place. This pagan king is actually enacting the will of God? It's so important because some of us might miss out on the hand of God because of the word of man. We say, oh, it can't come from that place. God can't give favor through this circumstance, through what I'm going through. Maybe for them, but not for me. And we start to reject the grace of God because we think that it should come differently. We cannot move into our purpose while placing God in a box. Saying, God, this is how I want to be blessed. This is how I need to come into my purpose. This is the job I need to have and the wife I need to have and the place I need to have. And we start to get a myopic, a really myopic view of what God's purpose actually is for us. The people of God now have a restored hope that the Messiah is coming. They're rebuilding the temple. They're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do it? But the interesting part about this is that King Cyrus gave an allowance for every person to go back, but only some did. What were they doing? They first were originally in this uncomfortable circumstance. Their culture was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, their culture, their temple, their history, their people, they were taken. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, it was a horrible time. They didn't know what to do. And in the beginning, they said, this is horrible. We can't do this. Our entire culture is destroyed. And then years and years and years later, they find themselves giving the allowance to go back to Jerusalem. And some of them say, no. They don't go back. They get comfortable comfortable in Babylon, the place they used to resent. This is now their new normal. They live in Babylon now. They, they don't have the hope to go back to Jerusalem. This is just what it is. I'm just going to get used to where I'm at, and I'm not going to move forward into what God has for me to do. The temptation that the Israelites had in this passage of Scripture was to stay in Babylon out of their purpose instead of going back to Jerusalem into their purpose. And what we see in the scriptures, we're going to talk about three things, is that when God stirs you, he does three things. He will stir you out of comfort, into courage, and into community. Whenever God stirs you, he will always stir you out of comfort, into courage, and into community. And this is exactly what we're going to take a look at for the next few minutes that we're together. The Israelites got comfortable. They were used to what was supposed to be. This is now the life that they lived. And the impulse, the stirring that God gave King Cyrus and God gave the Israelites was actually muted. They didn't know what they were supposed to do. They actually got to this point where they were trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do? They were at a loss. This was their new normal. They got comfortable because they didn't know which way to go. Now, when we think about a stirring, it's so important for us to know that God always stirs you with a purpose and he moves you with a motive. Whenever God is going to move you, there is always a direction and an intention that he's going to move you in. This isn't just a stirring that now I have energy and I'm fired up and now I don't know where I'm going to do. So I'm just going to live with all of this impulse inside of me. God is going to direct the stirring that he has for you. But the people of Israel didn't have this. 
They, they, they got comfortable exactly where they were. And what I see in the scriptures is that, just like with the Israelites, familiarity will oftentimes disrupt your faith. They got familiar. It, it, it was just what they did. This is just where I'm at. This is just what I do. I am just this single mom. That's just what it is. I just, my family history is just this. That's what it is. And now I'm trying to figure out, like, I will never keep a job for more than he, it's just what it is. I am always going to handle money in an unwise way. It's just what it, I have this addiction. My parents had it and his dad had it. It's just what it is. They got comfortable. If I had to give our American culture a value, it would be comfort. Wouldn't you agree that we love comfort? It's, it's, like, it's like how we make all of our decisions. It's how we know what job to take and where to move, what friends to have and what friends not to have, where we go to church and where we don't go to church, how we spend our money, how we don't spend our money, how we treat our kids, how we don't treat It's how we filter our lives is comfort. What's most comfortable for me? And the Israelites got into this place where they're trying to figure out how am I supposed to follow God if I'm still comfortable exactly where I'm at? They had to understand that the, the beginning of following God was at the end of their comfort zone. So in order to follow God wherever he was going, they had to get to the end of their comfort zone. I got an opportunity to go to Yellowstone National Park a few weeks ago, and it was just incredible. I have this ambition now to see every national park before I die. And I love national parks. I've only seen like four of them, but they're my new favorite thing. And as I was going to this national park, I was meeting up with some friends who had already been there for a few days. As they're there, we're all hanging out. We meet them, and we're all of a sudden like going through the park. We enter the park. They had been there for a while. And as I enter the park, I don't know if you've been to a national park, but the most beautiful places that our country has to offer. I walk into this park, and I am just like wide-eyed and mouth-dropped. I am amazed at the mountains and the valley and the bison and the moose and the river and the animals that are like 10 feet away from you and how it, it looks better than a postcard. And I'm just sitting here like, what is going on? How is, like, why is not everybody here all the time? And I'm sitting in this national park, and I look over to my friends, and they're kind of just, like, on their phones, like, waiting. And they're like, oh, yeah, when you're done, we can go. And I'm like, where, what is wrong with you? I'm like, we're in Yellowstone. And I'm just, like, seeing it all. And I am just in awe of what this place is. And I realized that they had been there before. They'd been there for a while, and so they're, they were like, oh, I'm ready to go when you are. <laughs> we'll go and see the other places that we haven't seen yet. And sometimes I feel like my friends are some, how some of us treat God. That we go to Yellowstone, a national park, in all of its beauty, and it's beautiful. And it's not that Yellowstone got any less beautiful, it's just that they got used to it. It's not that God is any less beautiful than he was when he first got saved. You just got used to it. At one point, you, you were that guy who said, oh my gosh, his grace is sufficient for me. And then now you're like, oh yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's basic. Of course his grace is sufficient for me. Whenever you're ready, we'll go over here. 
His mercies are new every morning. I can wake up and know that he has forgiven me and I have grace to walk in this day. Oh yeah, no, that was like Christianity 101. He took my place on the cross and now I don't have to be good enough for God, but God was good enough for me. And now he was a substitutionary atonement for my sins that now I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because it's by grace that I've been saved. It's not an act of work so that no man can boast. Are you serious? Yeah. And all of a sudden, it's not that God's glory got any less. You just got used to it. And we start going through life very, very comfortable, very, very used to God and not in awe of him as in walking into this church and saying, glory to God. I cannot believe who am I that you are mindful of me? God, who am I? And we walk through life not in awe of him anymore. We get comfortable. And and the Israelites were comfortable. They They didn't want to get out of their comfort zone. And God was stirring some of them. Something was inside of their heart bubbling up on the inside of them that they might not even have been able to put a word to. And they're trying to figure out, what do I do with this feeling? And oftentimes when God stirs you up, he will stir you outside of your comfort zone. Second one is courage. Courage. This is... uh, (laughs) Interesting, because courage is a great word and a scary word. And to be honest, a word that we might not be all too familiar with. That some of us know what we're supposed to do, but we're too fearful to do it. I'm convinced that a lot of the times, it's not that we need a pastor, a small group, so many friends, and a word from God coming down from heaven to tell us what to do. We just need to have courage to do what he already said before. And oftentimes, I'll say this, your community is so important. Your community will bring you into courage. They, hopefully a good community will push you into a courageous act in following Christ. And at the same time, a lot of us don't do it. We are deficient in courage. And here's the truth is that in Christianity, courage is essential. You cannot separate your Christianity from your courage. And if we are living a Christian life without courage, we are living deficient. It's the truth that we are required to live a Christian life in a Christian way that requires courage from you every single day. And if we are lacking in that courage, stepping out, we are not living in the full purpose of what God is asking us to do. We, we, it's, it's, it's like we have faith backwards sometimes. We say, okay, that next sight is scary. I don't want to do that. God, if you do it, then I'll do it. So God, put out a piece. Great. Whew. I had so much faith. No. <laughs> faith is not, God, you do it, and then I'll do it. And we treat it like that a lot of the times. We treat it like, God, if you just give me a lot more money, then I'll give. God, if, if, if you just take away the desire, I'll stop wanting to do it. And we say, God, as long as you do it, then I'll do it. But let me tell you is that the Christian faith is not, God, you do it, and then I will do it. It's, God, I believe that you're going to do it. So I'm going to take a step of faith, even not knowing all of the answers. 
I wish I could preach Pastor Adrian's message from a few weeks ago, but if you haven't heard it, hear it. Put some faith on it, right? Go on YouTube and watch it. Pastor AJ taught us that faith is not a feeling, faith is an action. So on the other side of faith is where God is going to meet you. And oftentimes what we need to do is we need to ask God for the courage as he stirs us up to take the action of faith and not just settle for the feeling of it. It's courage. It's a a Christian courage that God is commanding us to have. Um, When I graduated college, I wanted to... um, scare my parents and celebrate at the same time. So I went skydiving and it was the best experience I will never do again. Um, I don't know why I did it. Um, it's, it, you're probably going to feel like I'm double-minded. It's true because I, it was weird. Like I loved it in the moment and now I'm like, you're crazy if you go skydiving. And you're like, but you did it. It's like, yeah, shut up though. So for me, when I went skydiving, what happened is I remember showing up and um, it wasn't a runway. It was like a field. It was like just grass. And I pull up and this like tiny plane. And <laughs> I was like, this is going to be fun. I see uh, skydiving instructors just going up and down and up and down while they're training us to do it. Up and down and up and down and up and down. And these guys would just like, <laughs> they would grab a parachute. They would walk over to their uh, uh idiot, which was me, and they would grab me, and they would, <laughs> and they would jump in the plane, and they would go up, jump down, grab another parachute, grab another idiot, and go back up. And they were, he did this for like five times before I got on the plane. And I'm looking, and I'm terrified. I'm like, what am I doing? This is so dumb. I don't understand. Why did I, who, what is going on? And I remember he comes down, and my guy's name is Rico. He saved my life. I love him. He comes down, and as he gets out, he grabs the parachute that somebody else packed. I was like, you got a lot of faith. He grabs the parachute that somebody else packed. He's like, are you my guy? I'm like, yes, sir. And he grabs me, and we're the last ones in, so that means we're the first ones out. We get in the plane. The door opens like a garage, and I was like, this is wrong. And I'm just sitting, looking out, and I don't know why I'm here anymore. I am terrified. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, this is just very silly of me. He's sitting me on the edge. And I would like to say that I jumped, but he kind of just threw us out. And so I get thrown out of this plane. I'm falling. It's terrifying. Granted, if you've been skydiving, it is the most beautiful thing. It's amazing. And make your own decision. I'm not going again. And as I'm falling, it was like this amazing experience. And I'm falling and the parachute hits and I'm looking at the horizon. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is so beautiful. And, and I see that moment and I look back and I'm like, that moment wasn't necessarily me having just like this insane amount of courage. I think it taught me a lesson that Joshua learned in chapter one, which was this. We all know the verse, what? Joshua 1, 9, be strong and very courageous. A great, great verse. And I'm so happy because when I read that, the verse doesn't end there. It says, be strong and very courageous, for I am with you. This verse is not telling us to be courageous. This verse is teaching us how to be courageous. 
Courage is not something that you stir up in yourself by trying harder, looking at fear and saying, I'm going to be stronger than you. Courage is not ignoring the fears and the facts. Courage is this. It's acknowledging who is with you. Why? When I was going skydiving, I saw Rico going up and down and up and down and up and down. And as I saw him, I got on the plane with him. And you know what dispelled my courage? Not that I was taught well enough. Not that I got up enough muster. Not that I just gritted my teeth and I said, I'm going to be brave. I realized he's done this before. I realized he has a good track record. I realized I'm safe with him. Some of you need to realize it's not about trying harder. You don't need to have more courage on your of yourself. It's not going to come from within you. But if you realize that I'm going to be strong and courageous for he is with me, you can look at your situation and say, he's been there before. He's not resigned to time like I am. He has a good track record. I'm not going to follow myself. He's safer than me. This courage doesn't come from you. It comes from who you're with. Be strong and courageous for I am with you. It's what the scripture says. I'm going to take heart because my God is with me, not because I'm going to try harder, not because I'm going to do better, not because I'm going to muster it up, but because I am currently and convicted. I am so aware that my God is with me. A Christian courage. What would I say a Christian courage is? It's, it's this. A Christian courage is seeing your fear, but staring at your God. Seeing fear. I'm not ignoring it. I'm not making an ignorant decision. I'm not closing my eyes and taking this blind leap of faith. I see it, but I'm staring at him. A Christian courage, which leads into our community. Our community, it's, it's so beautiful that in the scriptures we see that King Cyrus gives this decree and he says, the tribes of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, the priests and the Levites. He calls groups of people. He doesn't call just singular individuals, but God is calling through Cyrus groups of people to accomplish his will in rebuilding the temple in the earth. In us as a culture, we are obsessed with a personal purpose. What's in it for me? What what is God going to do for me? We come to church looking for a personal purpose. What's in it for me? What does God want for me? What's my impact going to be? What's my individual calling going to be? What are my gifts that he's given me for my purpose? And here's the thing. I'm not saying that an individual purpose is bad. I'm just saying that it might not be it. There might be more for you. A personal purpose is not sinful. It just might be small. God might just be wanting to do more than just fulfilling your desires. We, we come, to, come to God and we say, God, sometimes we use him like this. God, sponsor my purpose. Endorse my dreams. Would you give me what I need to do what I want to do? And as soon as you don't give me what I need to do what I want to do, I'm not sure if you're so good. It's, it's this, this inward-facing conviction that God is for me, and God only wants what's best for me. And I'm not saying that God does not want what's best for you. I'm saying that God might want to enlarge your vision to see that it's not just for you. 
that God has you in mind. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now that you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That means that you are part of a body and yet still are an individual. But you are called into something that you were not before. I'm grateful that God placed us together in a collective calling. I need you to fulfill my purpose. You need me to fulfill your purpose. You need that person next to you to fulfill your purpose. That's how God designed it to be is that we are meant to fulfill our purpose inside of community. And I'm so thankful that God chose to bring me into community. God is not just somebody that sponsors my dream for my life, but he brings me into a family to accomplish his purpose for us. Tribe of Benjamin, tribe of Judah, the Levites and the priests, go and rebuild the temple. This is what, it's an unquenchable impulse that doesn't come from me and isn't just for me. He calls us into community. It's not that God doesn't want to bless you. It's just that he doesn't want to bless only you. I was with my small group uh, uh, over the summer and we got to do like a little fire pit, like a bonfire type thing. It's not a bonfire. It was a fire pit. And um, as we were doing this fire pit, I, I like fire maybe a little bit too much. Um, and I, like, I'm, I, if you, if I'm at a fire pit or a bonfire with you, I'm the guy who like grabs a stick and starts poking the fire. And I just like love to see like the embers and the fire and the sparks and stuff like that. And as we're sitting and we're playing games, hanging out, having community, and we notice something interesting that as you're sitting next to this fire pit, what happens is I noticed that everything within the fire pit was like invincible, Like these coals, we had been there for hours and these coals were burning hot and there was no way that I could put them out. And then I noticed that every time a coal jumped out of the fire and onto the concrete, it maybe had a lifespan for like two minutes. And I'm looking at the coals that were in the fire pit and the coals that fell out of the fire pit. And what I realized is that sometimes if we're not careful, we can be just like those coals. Gathered coals burn bright. Scattered coals burn out. A gathered church will burn bright, but a scattered church will burn out. Gathered believers will burn bright. You best believe it. But a scattered believer, you've experienced it. I don't have to tell you. You know that when you're alone, When you're apart from community, when you haven't been to church, when you're trying to do this Christian thing by yourself, you know that you burn out. You know you don't have the energy. You know you have to try and keep yourself on fire. You know you have to try and fan your own flame. But when you're in community, you keep me on fire. I keep you on fire. You keep me in my purpose. I keep you in your purpose. And I'm not saying that your community is your God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that God said that we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. A gathered church burns bright, but a scattered church burns out. Are you a gathered church? When he stirs something up in you, are you gathering with other believers? 
Are you bringing it to your community? Are you investing inside of your church? Are you praying for your church in Capitol Hill? Are you praying for your members in your small group? Are you investing in your community? When God stirs you up, he stirs you in a community. This is just the truth of what it is. Our experience with God. He stirs us out of comfort into courage and into community. We see Jesus, Luke chapter 24. He's been crucified. He's in the tomb. These people think he is. There are these two disciples who are distraught. Their hope is deferred. They thought Jesus was this man and all of a sudden he's gone. And they're walking on this road to Emmaus. And all of a sudden they see this man and he starts to walk with them. They didn't know it was Jesus. It was Jesus. They're walking with him. He starts opening up the scriptures. He says, why are you so, why are you so sad? He says, have you not heard that the man they called Jesus has been crucified? We thought that he was the guy. And now I don't know what to do. He walks with them seven miles. They don't know it's him. He says, I got to go. They say, no, would you please sit with us and eat with us? He says, all right. He sits with them. He breaks the bread. It says all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they see who Christ is. And it says this, Luke chapter 24, verse 32. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked with us on the road? While he opened up to us the scriptures? They were stirred up. The presence of God was stirring them up. When the presence of God draws near, hearts begin to burn. When God shows up in your circumstances, our hearts begin to move. He starts to bubble up something inside of us that wasn't there before. And a beautiful part of this story is this truth, is that when they saw Jesus, their hearts began to burn, not for their purpose, not for, not for their city necessarily, not that they were now saved and they were back on top, but their hearts began to burn for the one who set them ablaze. Their hearts were actually burning for the sake of Christ. That when God stirs us, he stirs us for himself. When God burns inside of you, he burns inside of you for yourself. It's not just a stirring so that your life might be easier, your family might be better, you might have all the money in the world and the job and the wife you always wanted. But when he stirs you, he doesn't stir you for material things, he stirs you for himself. Their hearts began to burn on the inside of them. And they say, wasn't that him? We see the truth that's evident all throughout Scripture. Wherever the presence of God is, there is potential for stirring. Wherever the presence of God is, there is a potential that he would stir you up. And my prayer is not that you would leave this room more excited to go and do some good Christian things. My prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit would stir something up in your heart that you could never stir up yourself. When God stirs you, he stirs you out of comfort, into courage.
marriage and into community. And maybe most importantly, the Holy Spirit himself, the only one who can truly stir you, stirs you for himself. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are expectant. You said where two or more are gathered, you will be among them. And so, Lord, we aren't hoping that you are here. We are welcoming your presence. We are acknowledging the person of God in our presence right now.